first of all, my apologies. I'll <clears throat> need you to forgive me. There's a high probability I'm going to be coughing throughout the sermon. Um, so I'll try my best not to cough into the mic. Um, it's been a challenging past few weeks. Um, uh, this cough is just this persistent thorn in my flesh, I think. <laughs> but uh, I thought I was rid of it three years ago, but it's come with uh, vengeance. But you know what the beauty of it is that uh, we have such a loving and kind church. Someone was kind enough to pray for me here, and another one was kind enough to grab me uh, lozenges. So I'm hoping that helps. So it, it just shows you um, the kindness and the love that flows in this fellowship. So I praise God for all of you. Um, so, uh, you know, as you all are aware, for this year, um, most of our sermons are going to be covering uh, the various teachings or doctrines that are core to our faith and which God had set forth. And today and next Sunday, I'll be speaking on the topic of sin, uh, the human dilemma. And, and having said that, I'll ask you all to open up uh, your scriptures to Genesis chapter 3. You know, it's the chapter that talks about the serpent that was in the garden and the temptation, the forbidden fruit, and a woman who was deceived and a man who followed her in going against God's command and his word. And I know, you know, a lot of preachers uh, state that certain verses and chapters or books are the most important in the Bible. But today I'm going to take the liberty in stating that this might probably be the most important chapter in the Bible. You know, if we are not able to understand this chapter, we will definitely um, not understand the rest of the Bible. You know, you cannot understand what the cure is unless you understand the diagnosis. You, we cannot understand what the solution is uh, unless we understand the problem. Uh, you will in no way be able to understand God's treatment um, for this world if you do not understand the illness under which this world functions and lives. So I say, you know, it may very well be one of the most important chapters because it explains everything about our universe and about life in this universe and all of us who live in it. You know, it, it shows us why we are the way we are, why things are the way they are, and what God is, is doing in history and why he's doing it in terms of salvation. So today... I'd like to go over the human dilemma, the origin of sin, and, and what is sin and the, and the nature of sin with all of you today. See, all the problems in the universe have their very origin in this event, um, documented here in Genesis. So, look around you. Spiritual problems, social problems, physical problems, moral problems political problems, economic problems, every problem was spawned from this very event. So this chapter is the foundation of any accurate and true worldview. And without this foundation, every worldview is horribly wrong. If you misunderstand this, everything is misdiagnosed and hopelessly in incurable. So it's interesting because when we go to the end of chapter 1 in Genesis, it says... And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But let's face it, everything in our world is very bad. It is far, far from good, let alone very good. When God had finished completing his perfect creation, it was very good because, what? There was no chaos. 
There was no disorder. There was no conflict. There was no disease. There was no struggle. There was no pain. There was no decline. And there was no death. You know, now we all plan our lives around these various items, don't we? It is so ingrained the way we think. Our lives are defined by chaos, disorder, conflict, disease, struggle, pain, decline, and death. Every, if not most of our actions and decisions we make, we include risk management, you know, and critical thinking. I must have life insurance. I must have a car insurance. I must have a house insurance. I must have, oh, don't forget, disability insurance. I must have my health coverage. I must have a will written out. When I head out of the road, I got to ensure that I got this, this, this checked off. And when something goes wrong that we didn't plan for, what do we say? Ah, it's life. Such is life. Human life is definitely a struggle. As soon as life is conceived in the mother's womb, the process of living and dying happens at the same time. When you do technically physically stop growing, it's because the rate of which your cells regenerate and multiply decreases and the death of such cells increases. And if you were to look at the moral and and spiritual world, you will notice that everyone finds it so much easier to do wrong. Have you ever noticed that? In fact, it's really impossible to do righteous things. Even when you do right, humanly, it's because you generally feel much better about yourself, which in fact is an ill-conceived motive. So hatred, crime, war, wickedness, perversions, struggles, conflicts, these are things that just come with life. So we have to ask ourselves this fundamental question. What's wrong with the picture? In the end of Genesis 1, all is very good. And we look at the world around us, and it's far from it. This is where the evolutionists get it wrong. They are completely unaware of this. They are living under an illusion that man is improving and getting better. The basic concept of evolution is that man starts from a simple state and evolves to a more complex state. He starts from a very low, minimal level of intelligence, and guess what? He evolves to our higher intelligence. Then he's, So it's like he starts from a very base level of mor- moral, morals and he moves to a higher level of morals. The fact of life and the truth about man dismisses evolution because man isn't getting or becoming better. He's getting worse. We are just, you know, the way we are, we're just able to accumulate in- iniquities at a much faster rate. And with our technological advances, we are just accumulating wretchedness faster. That's the truth of the matter. No, you know, man did not start off at the bottom of the moral ladder. And if you look historically, we are morally no better than we were in the past. So what happened is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. So let's read the first few verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the world that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is how Genesis 3 starts. And even though the word sin does not appear here, you must understand this is where it entered our world. When Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent in the garden and disobeyed God, everything had gone from being extremely good to being extremely bad. And we can see this in Romans 5 verse 12, 12, which gives us a, a New Testamental commentary as to what happened. And this is what it says. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. That is the final measure of decay. So when Adam sinned, we were all there. We were in his loins. We were his offspring. We have, in essence, all come from Adam and Eve. And so we inherit what a lot of theologians will call original sin. It basically says when Adam sinned, we were all taken down with him because we have all come from him. <clears throat> and you can see many references to this in Psalm 51 was 5, Ephesians 2 was 2 and 3, Proverbs 22 was 15, Genesis 8 was 21, all talking about the depravity of man. So you'll notice at the end of the chapter 2, that Adam and Eve were naked and weren't ashamed of anything. And there wasn't anything to be ashamed of because there was no sin. There was no perverse or evil thoughts. But now when we come to the, to the record, we just read in verse 7, it says that the eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So all of a sudden, they were ashamed. Why? Well, for the first time since their existence, they had wicked thoughts. Never before this event had they had any, and apparently this has something to do with their sexuality. <coughs> Where there was no shame before, there is now. <coughs> there is a perfect indicator. This is a perfect indicator to us that from their personal viewpoint, they had sinned. We can see that from God's viewpoint that they had sinned. When he says the following verse, uh, following in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. <coughs> 
So we see that when God curses Adam and Eve, it's interesting because those curses are physical. The woman is cursed in terms of multiplied pain during childbearing and on her conflict in marriage. And now for Adam, he no, no longer has the benefit of just reaching out and plucking a fruit from, the, from Eden. He'll have to go out and he'll have to work the ground until he eventually dies. But these curses do not really say anything about any moral changes that took place in Adam and Eve. <coughs> However, it becomes very apparent quickly. First, Adam and Eve both feel shame. And that is, this is always, always a function of guilt. And we all know that guilt is a function of sin. And somehow they had now thoughts of wickedness and were utterly embarrassed by them that they had to sew together leaves to cover themselves. Then we see that they had two sons in chapter 4. And of course, one murders the other, and the rest is history. You know, once Adam and Eve had fallen, they were altered and changed, and they had passed on this sin and fallenness to every human being. We are all now born to die. Every man is appointed to die once. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. As mentioned earlier, the moment a baby is born and being formed, the baby starts to die and grow at the same time as mentioned. And we all battle through life to keep death from taking hold of us as long as we can. So not only do we inherit death, but we inherit sin because we were all there in Adam. That is original sin. If we don't understand that, we cannot explain the human dilemma that plagues us. You see, <clears throat> this not only affected man's moral life and henceforth every, henceforth every area of relationship, be it a husband and a wife, be it a father to a son, be it um, a sister to a brother, be it the church together, be it any relationship, it also affected the physical universe, the material universe, and the ground. Romans 8 states, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay, so I've had the experience of going through, uh, standing next to Elsa for 72 hours. 72 hours as she went through childbearing pain. Scripture's true. Secondly, to think that the whole created order is continually going through something similar. It's growing because of sin, because of the curse, because of the fallenness that has corrupted that which was very good. You know, evolutionary psychology says there has to be something wrong with man's environment for society to not be changing. You know, that is why man is currently morally worse and it comes down to, hey, listen, I'm not bad. Uh, you are bad and you're making me bad. You know, so the blame is passed around. 
That's what man, you know, that's what evolutionary psychology says. Hey, it's the environment or it's someone else. And uh, secular psychologists want to reject sin because they want to uplift man. And they, they want to try to elim- eliminate God from the picture. So when they reject sin, there is no explanation as to why man is the way he currently is. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can end that reign of terror. You can't, you cannot counsel it away. You cannot deal with it with psychotherapy treatment or antidepressants. The issue is that we have all inherited a nature that is corrupt. You know, if you were talking about sin today, you will find very few who would be interested in listening. Very few. The concept is very ancient. It's archaic to talk about a sinful nature or the fact that people are corrupt at birth. (coughs) To say that we inherited a corrupt and wicked nature from our parents. Because, um, thank you, because they were genetically, as it were, in Adam. Unacceptable is the cry that we would get back. To talk about people being born with an evil bent and that we are all born with an innate desire to violate God's law and to dethrone God and replace him with ourselves. To say that we are not capable of doing good. To make a statement that we are rotten to our very core. To make a statement that our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. This is just not acceptable publicly. You see, our culture has declared war on sin and also on guilt. The very idea of guilt is considered medieval and definitely unhealthy. You know, there was once a a mega bestseller 30-odd years ago by Dr. Wayne Dyer. It was called Your Erroneous Zones. And he said, the most useless of all erroneous zones is guilt. He said, guilt, quote, must be exterminated, spray cleaned and sterilized forever. The ask is for us to get rid of guilt. And he lets us know how you do it. Quote, do something which you know is bound to result in feelings of guilt. Take a week to be alone. If you always wanted to do something, despite the guilt engendering protestations from other members of your family, these kinds of behavior will help you tackle that omnipresent guilt. <coughs> In other words, if you feel guilty about certain things, do them and just keep doing them till you don't feel guilty anymore. He says, defy your guilt. Spurn your husband, spurn your children, attack that sense of self-disapproval head on. Do something that is sure to make you feel guilty and just keep doing it till you don't feel guilty anymore. Refuse to hear the cries of your conscience, the duties of family responsibility, the appeals of your loved ones. You owe it to yourselves. Sear your consciousness. Sear your conscience. Nobody 
and this is 30, 35 years ago, nobody treats guilt seriously anymore. And heaping guilt on yourself only goes to adding unwanted low esteem, depression, stress, worry, feeling of inadequacy and dependency on others. So the easier way out is to let go of your guilty feelings. This is a fundamental, serious issue because now you have officially cut people off from being repentant. And even the possibility of it we have a society. Have you, have you wondered? You can talk about sin to someone. You can talk about the ramifications. And they're like, well, everyone's like that. Eh. There is no remorse. There is no guilt. And you, and, you, and you feel like you're the crazy one. Like, how can you not feel guilty? Do you understand why people don't repent of their sins? Because they do not understand that they are at fault. So we like a society that passes the blame around. And we alone as Christians, when we come to the word of God, and we believe the Bible, we get it. We have politicians, you have educators, you have moralists, you know, university people trying to fix society in some way or the other, and it cannot be done by them because the real issue isn't dealt with. Then we have others that try to define sin as an illusion or the fact that to be human is to err. So what is sin? What is sin? Let's define it. Sin would be any lack of conformity to the moral character of God or His laws. Therefore, sin is a disposition of our heart. It is warped. It acts evil. It thinks evil. It speaks evil. And it avoids good. So you sin when you think, say, and do evil. And you sin when you don't think, say, or do things that God commands you to do. It's funny because sometimes people believe it's all the actions that causes them to be sinful in some way or the other. But the fact of the matter is, if you know what pleases God, if you know what His command is, and if you do not do it, that's a sin. That is a sin. You know, any sin, so, so sin is any violation of the character of God's law. You can sum it up in, in, from the verse in 1 John 3, verse 4. It says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And James 4, verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails, it, fails to do it, for him it is sin. When you know to do right and you don't do it, this is a sin. When you know something pleases God and it is something that God has commanded and you do not do it, that is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. <coughs> Now let's go past the definition for just a moment and look at the nature of sin. Just briefly. The nature of sin. First of all, sin is defiling. I'll just give you a few things to think about. Sin is defiling. These, these are the things that characterize sin. Not defining it, but actually characterizing it. So, this is how it 
manifests itself. It's a violation. It shows up first of all as defiling. It's a pollutant. It is to the soul what scars are to a beautiful face. You know, it is like what a stain is on a white silk cloth. It is ugliness across the face of beauty. It's a, it's a kind of ugliness that is defined in Scripture in very graphic terms. In 1 Kings 8, verse 38. Sin in man's heart is compared to ugly oozing sores from a deadly plague. In Zechariah 3, verse 3, Joshua the high priest's sin is like a filthy garment that's being worn by a person. When you go down to the inner city somewhere and you pass by the street people who have lived in the same clothes and slept in the same clothes in the street for years, and that's the filthy garments that's a picture of sin here. Sin scars the image of God and man. Sin stains the soul. It degrades man's nobility. An interesting statement is made in Zechariah when he's talking about sin. There's so much about it, of course, all through the Bible, but in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 8, there's a very interesting statement where God actually says, there is a loathing. He says, then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month for my soul loathed them. Is what it actually says. My soul detested them. And they also detested me. Sin causes you to hate God and to loathe God. God says, my soul loathed them. If you, want to love, if you truly want to show a sign that you love God, what does Jesus say? Keep my commandments. My soul loathed them and they loathed me. And when a sinner sees his sin... He sees it as defiling. He sees it for what it is. As like Ezekiel 20, verse 43 says, and there, and there you will remember your ways and all your deeds, which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things you've done. When you really, really look at yourself, you see the defiling of sin, and you loathe yourself. Sin pollutes. Sin defiles sin corrupts paul calls it in second corinthians 7 verse 1 the filthiness of the flesh and spirit so thomas goodwin the puritan wrote sin is called poison sinners serpents sin is called vomit sinners dogs sin is called the stench of grave sinners rotten sepulchers sin is called mire sinners pigs. It's defiling. It's degrading. It stamps the devil's image on the human soul. You see, sin is secondly, rebellion. It's not only defiling, it is rebellion. It is by its own nature, as mentioned in Leviticus 26 verse 27, walking contrary to God. It is just walking Constant opposition, in constant rebellion. A sinner tramples on God's law, tramples on God's character, willfully crosses God's will, affronts God, spites God, mocks God, 
That's what it was for Eve. That's what it was for Adam. And that's what it's starting to look like definitely for all of us. Perhaps a good definition is in Jeremiah 44, 17. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goes forth out of our own mouth. That's it. God, we will do exactly what we want to do. Exactly what we want to do. Sin, if I could say so, is God's would-be murderer. Sin would not only dethrone God, but unguard God and replace him with us. If the sinner had his way, God would cease to be God and the sinner would be the only God in his world. So sin is defiling. Sin is open, incessant rebellion. <coughs> now the third one, sin is ingratitude. I mean, everything we have, everything we are is from God. We live and move and have our being in God. Acts 17 verse 28 says, He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain to the just and the unjust. He has given us everything. And Romans 1, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven because when they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, neither were thankful. When they, what, knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful thankful. Sin is just ungrateful. If the very scripture states that when people knew God and they did not glorify him or were thankful, it is an affront to God. It tells you the heart of God here. I want you to keep that in your minds. All the food the sinner ever eats, God gave him. All the air the sinner ever breathes, God gave him. All the joys the sinner ever experiences, God provided. All the love he ever experienced in the human world, everything. All of his senses are from God. All of the pleasures of life to meet those senses are from God. Every beauty of life is from God. It is God who has given wisdom to us. He has given wisdom to the mind of every human being to think and feel and work and play and rest that life might be full and useful. And, God, and it is God who made us love and make us laugh and made us cry. It is God who gave us special skills and abilities to excel in some areas and to know some measure of self-respect and value. It's God who gave us the capacity to care for each other and have relationships. It's God who providentially preserves us from getting every disease and dying every death. God literally surrounds the sinners with mercy. And they abuse them. You know, it's like Absalom. You know, as soon as <clears throat> David, his father, had kissed him and embraced him, he went out and plotted treason against his father. So the sinner eagerly takes the kiss of God that God provides in the created world and embraces God's graces and God's mercy and then betrays him by being a friend of God's enemy, Satan. Sin is serious ingratitude. <coughs> it's damning ingratitude. 
And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that ingratitude. You know, sin is defiling. It's rebellion. It is ingratitude. And today we have had the opportunity to look into the dilemma that faces man, the origin of sin. You know, what is sin and the nature of sin? But there is more to sin that meets the eye. It does not just end there. I mean, today in our worship session, it was just a powerful reminder a powerful reminder that we have a way out. If people think in any way that God is in, you know, unjust because how am I corrupt because of Adam's sin, God has given us every human being a free way out of this. A free way out. That is through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, We'll have to, you know, there's more to sin, you know, that meets the eye. And next week, you know, I hope to continue on the, on the doctrine of sin. However, today I know I've had this asked of me before. Some of you may be looking for an application from me, and I cannot give you uh, all an application. But I pray that the Spirit can. But I can tell you how the preparation of this sermon has applied to me. Firstly, a powerful reminder. This sin nature is never going to leave or forsake me as long as I walk this physical earth. It is going to be an everyday struggle as I journey through life. But just as this sin nature is not going to leave me nor forsake me, God is there. He too, will never leave nor forsake me. Secondly, and this was a very powerful one. It's scary, actually. If the sin of Adam and Eve affected the whole of humanity, it is a truth statement that shows me that when I sin, whatever I commit, whatever I do, will affect those around me and those to come. It will affect my parents. It will affect my siblings. It will affect my wife. It will affect my kids, my coworkers, the people I interact with. When I fail to worship God, when I fail to witness, when I fail to follow His commands, my sin not only impacts me, but people around me, and by far hurts God And it's even more scarier because for us who are redeemed, the consequence of our sin have a greater impact because it impacts the gospel that ought to be kept pure and true. Pure and true. When there are young ones here that look at our life and the way we live, when there are young ones here, when they look at how we deal with struggles, conflicts, issues against doctrinal items, as we struggle in life, when they view us, we are held so much more accountable. When the people outside look at us, those who are saved, who know the gospel truth and sin, how much more 
Are we accountable? I pray that as we go through the doctrine of sin this week and next week, that our hearts and our minds will echo with all honesty the same thought someday as Joan of Arc stated. I would rather die than do something which I know to be a sin or to be against God's will. Let's pray. Father, today, we've just really just begun our study in what is such an unhappy subject to be considering and yet so needed. We have just scratched the surface. We are called, we're called to understand the heart of man. We have to understand our own hearts. We have to understand our sin, its severity, its incurable power from the human perspective. We have to understand its deadliness. We have to understand sin because it's the defining element in our universe. It's why things are the way they are. And Father, we have to understand sin because most of all, it's why we need a Savior. And to that end, it's Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, O oh Lord God, that you would show us much grace and much mercy, that we would be reminded that you are a God of love as much as you are a God who loves justice and who hates sin. We pray that you would protect this body, that you would lead us not into temptation, that you would deliver us from evil, that we would understand that as much as this sin nature will not leave us, that you will not leave us. We pray in the coming weeks that we would understand more of this doctrine and more importantly, more of the doctrine of salvation. We thank you, Father, that as we come into your presence, it is because of what your son has accomplished on that cross. We thank you that it is because he stands by your side interceding that we can be here today. And we pray for those around us, those who know not the gospel, who are steeped in sin, who are ignorant of the truth, who want to remain in darkness, that you would wake them up, that you would give us opportunities to share this, the gospel truth, that there is a way out. We pray that you would guide us and guide us. And thank you once again, Father, for giving us all things. In Jesus Christ's precious name.